Hey, tennis fans, you're listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we are now halfway through our first Grand Slam of the tennis season, the Australian Open Down Under in Melbourne. And this week, to help us break down all of these things, plus a whole lot more, is a former professional Canadian tennis player, a well-respected coach both at the professional and junior level, someone with a top 10 sense of humor and who has been a regular on the podcast. We're really lucky to be joined once again by Rob Steckley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully you uh, shamelessly plug a few claps and applauds. I got my daughter right in front of me and she's going to clap for me. Nice. <laughs> nice. We'll, uh, we'll throw in some of that applause behind the scenes. I think we can add that in later. And, um, Forgive me, I should have said top top five sense of humor, Rob. Your sense of humor is terrific. And it's one of the things that we love having you on about and, and just when we bump into you in person as well at various tennis events. And I think it's something that's also served you so well as a coach. But uh, we'll get to the coaching questions a little later. For right now, just to start, um, what's new and exciting in your life, both tennis and otherwise, that you can share with us and our listeners today? I mean... <laughs> Off topic, I don't know if you can see behind me, but there is a serious rental going on at the house. The wife wants to be happy, so we're just trying to make her happy by uh, extending some of the uh, living quarters. But uh, outside of that, you know, I've been traveling predominantly all 2023, but uh, kind of in ghost mode um, and doing um, predominantly, like I said, I think the last time we talked was all Canadians. So I've been really trying to focus on uh, Canadian tennis and um, yeah, just trying to see my family as much as possible and trying to figure out the balance there. So um, I think the last year has been pretty decent for me and uh, watching my kids grow and uh, also aiding in some of the Canadian uh, new talent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Rob, you and I obviously have a lot of conversations because uh, he's been by helping out at the Thornhill Park Tennis Club, where I coach part time and uh, giving his insights and uh, help to some of our junior players. I, I always wonder when a Grand Slam comes around and, you know, you have that experience and pedigree at the highest level coaching in that type of environment, what it must be like. Is there a different type of pressure you would feel as a coach when you're, you know, say stepping on the grounds in Melbourne or at the All England Club? Do you feel a different sense of pressure uh, in that environment? And say you were down under right now, would you have any type of different approach or philosophy to coaching at a major compared to anywhere else? I mean, you know, you try to shade out all, all of that exterior uh, pressure because it's just another day in the office. But we know uh, going into these types of slams that uh, there's a ton of pressure and the expectations are high. So uh, it's trying to minimize a lot of that distraction is probably the most important. So for me as a coach, you know, the job is always... Uh, to try to keep it as casual as possible, knowing that everybody knows that, you know, the first slam of the year is always the most important and you're always judged upon, um, you know, what you've done in the preseason leading into this and everybody kind of uh, makes their own assumptions as to how your year will go. So that's kind of what's on the players' minds, as, uh, you know, along with us coaches. So, 
Um, there's always that added pressure, but for me, truly, I don't, I don't buy into it. You know, I just live every day kind of vicariously through my player and, and make them, you know, kind of see what's on the other side of, uh, if there are results or if there aren't results. And that's kind of the most important is the progress and the journey. So, um, I try to keep it as loose as possible, knowing that, you know, there's all this exterior pressure. And, um, I think I found a, a pretty good way, um, using humor, you know, hard work and, and just a bunch of substance. And, and, uh, I think the players buy into that. That's the most important. Yeah. I, I sort of wonder with, with particular players who they, you know, sort of uh, adapt to the pressure or they struggle within the pressure. And sometimes I wonder if certain players almost get caught in these negative holding patterns. For example, Maria Zachary just uh, going out early in Melbourne. She hasn't been past the third round of a slam um, since reaching the fourth round at Australia last year. And she's obviously one of these top 10 players who's not getting it done in majors. Have you dealt with any players who are, you can sense like there's a negative energy in certain environments? And I, I don't know if you if you had to put your coaching goggles on with a player like Zachary, uh, what what would you think about, about managing something like that? Well, I, I mean, first and foremost, that that their team has been a longstanding team, you know, so they have a lot of history, and clearly, it's evident that um, you know she she. I guess has a lot of weight going into Australia and struggles and a lot of players that's kind of the common theme amongst everybody is they don't particularly like certain uh, aspects of certain tournaments and then going in you already know it, you know you're in a hole and you got to dig it out so um, that's for that team to figure out I have always uh, kind of sat back and watched whoever I've worked with to talk about these conversations loosely or right in front of my face, you know, just shoving it in saying they don't like to be here. So, um, you know, it's for the coach and the, you know, the player and, and those conversations to kind of dissect and figure out why or why not, you know? And so, um, yeah, Sakara, hopefully she'll figure it out. I mean, she's good enough, obviously, but she's got a lot of weight. I mean, she puts a lot of pressure on herself. So, um, that's just something that uh, it's in her character and that's probably why she's stayed pretty consistent with her career um, but as far as obviously I think the conversations of, amongst everybody are why not and why hasn't she done probably a little bit better is uh, the question and I think that if she could find a space where she doesn't care as much I think she'll find a little bit more success if I'm making sense, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Please clarify. Do, do you totally. feel like, like every coach has a shelf life? I mean, you're talking about Zachary and having a team that's been with her for quite a long time. Um, I know in the hockey world and professional sport world, they say, you know, coaches are hired to be fired, that inevitably at some point you're going to be turfed and, and usually in a team sport before major changes happen with the players on that team. Um, in a coaching relationship in tennis, it's it's different. The coach is not, there's no general manager there to fire the player or trade the player because you're working for yourself. But do you think there's something to be said that at some point every player should seek outside voices, a, a new voice, a new perspective? 
Oof, that, yeah, that's a sensitive topic because as a coach, you know, uh, I, I deal with that constantly and you would not want those conversations to have as a selfish, you know, reason. But um, externally, if you're looking in, um, yeah, there's always a shelf life and, and teams become pretty comfortable, uh, but you don't want to kind of dissect too hard and, and you know, feel like, you know, there, there's an issue and, and probably, you know, the problem solving in that is to find exterior help. And, and you know, I, I know that for me, when I'm in those scenarios, I just really try to do my best to focus on how I can improve or connect with the player as much as possible and bring as much value, but also bring in um, outside help. So I, I'm not a, a stranger to trying to, you know, have a lot of outside conversation, trying to figure out who I can bring in and maybe what others would be feeling and, you know, on, on their end as to what they would change and maybe, you know, their philosophies and I could try to bring that in. So as long as you're open-minded, so, you know, in her case, I don't know. I, I don't want to be, you know, point I don't mean specific. And, yeah. I don't mean specific to Sacri. I'm not saying like, Hey, should she seek a new team, but just sort of generally speaking, you know? Yeah. Well, generally speaking, I mean, just, I think if everybody keeps an open mind and the coach is very aware of that and you know, they're, yeah, they're not sensitive as to this is my method and it's only my method, then I don't think they should be, you know, threatened by the fact that there could be outside help. I think that uh, most tour players kind of have conversations. I know on a daily, you know, after matches, before matches, everybody's kind of chatting and talking and seeing what's up. And, and uh, I know that's, you know, for me, that's my case. So um, I think that's just a general consensus of, you know, trying to make sure that you're open-minded. Start of the tennis season, and you know everyone's had a very brief off season. But there's this sense of optimism at the start of a new year. I think probably for all players that it's going to be different from the year before. That they're going to make changes. There's going to be growth and improvements. Of course, you get a couple of tournaments into the season, and already some are not having the results maybe they they hope to have. Um, how in the early part of the season do do players sort of manage those? And as a coach as well, how would you manage a player who's not having the start that they hope for and maybe anticipated. That's every coach and player's worst fear is, you know, doing a preseason, going in super amped. Everybody's, you know, excited to start the season, but also with that hanging over their shoulders, you know, the, the what if, if I don't start, you know, uh, the way we should. And, and, Again, it, I talk a lot about this, you know, when we have these conversations, it's more about like trying to continue the journey. And if you can buy into that as a team, um, you know, it's not really about starting the season must need to do, you know, the best possible out of that beginning. As long as you've had a good preseason, you know, where you're taking your game, where you're taking you know, the next chapter of, you know, leading into February and Doha and Dubai and, and so on and so forth, you know, I, I feel like that's the most important. And as long as you're mature as a team and you guys really have talked things through and you know where you're going, um, 
the results are going to come. And inevitably, I think if you guys are that open, um, results will come because you're going to be faced with pressure at the very beginning of the year. Everybody does. That's the most important. You know, all eyes are on the beginning, first slam of the year, um, and who's doing what and those types of conversations. So as long as you can tune things out, stay in your camp and stay progressed, focused, um, things typically run the course, you know, whether you've exited a little bit uh, unlucky at the beginning. I'll tell you one thing, you know, when I was working with Lucy, uh, we were sitting, I think it was third or fourth round of Aussie. Um, it was center court and she was playing Lena. She had triple match point. She lost, she lost. And the ball was, we thought was in, it was called out last minute. Um, long story, probably long, is she uh, went on to win the tournament and Lucy and I had to sit there while we played doubles. And that was that. And it was like the most gutting feeling ever. But we knew we made progress and we had to listen to all these conversations uh, of, you know, if she had only, if she closed a little bit sooner when she needed to be. Um, you know, those would have distracted us and we would have been off course. But we knew that after, you know, the heartbreaking loss, we kind of analyzed and we knew where we were going. And sure enough, you know, the remainder of the year was a positive. Everything kept getting better and better. And we kept getting um, more progress in the game. And we knew exactly where we needed to be and dialed in and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's the most important, you know, and try to, as a unit, as a team, not looking too much into the immediate because everybody's going to try to dissect that. And it's for a team to understand where you're taking them. That's a really interesting story. And actually uh, we, we just saw Li Na on site, I, I think congratulating uh, Zhang Xin Wen uh, on, on reaching the round of 16. And it was 10 years ago in 2014, I guess a decade ago, Li Na won, won that big Australian Open title. You know, mentioning Lucy Safarovi, obviously you have that experience coaching high profile players. And, and I wonder uh, for Safarova, you know, working with Denis Shapovalov, Yulia Putin-Seva, players have been, you know, top 10, top 20, top 30, and and going on, as you say, like a journey in their process with them. Can you identify like a, a tangible difference sometimes between the players who are, you know, getting to the top 25, top 10 and staying there, and the players who are not getting there, who are maybe, maybe hovering outside the top 100 or or uh, not not breaking through, if there is a tangible difference, really? Uh, I mean, First and foremost is self-belief. Uh, that, that's, you know, for me, that's the most important. If they believe in themselves and they have chosen to believe in their coaching staff. As, uh, you know, moving past that now um, is, you know, the relentlessness of being okay with getting better and being uncomfortable, okay? That's... You know, I think number two, number three is they keep it between the coach, the staff and themselves. There's no outside conversations. I think that's what we were talking about a couple of questions ago. Um, you know, there's this level of communication and respect that those types of players have. And 
they really believe and, and you know and and hold value they understand what it is that you and the or or the coach and the player and their staff has discussed um on the table and, and they know what direction they're taking so i think um letting in outside voices is pretty common theme you know when you see somebody that's trailing 30 and 40 and 50 i mean you can go into you can go lack of money you can go um lack of uh awareness but i think that's pretty standard and i think at the top of my list is um i've always been fortunate to have players out on tour that truly have conversations and we're talking openly constantly and um I find that that's kind of what I'm maybe struggling or learning to deal with now when I'm working with more juniors or transition players. Um, there's so many voices and it's mm -hmm. so hard because I'm only one guy and, you know, the team should be made up of small numbers. You know, there could be, you know, the player and whatnot, but um, yeah, I find that there are so many people talking to so many other people which make it so much more challenging to get your point across because there are 400 million other points to get across if you're listening to other people. So, um, yeah, I think that that's what those are able to do is listen to somebody that they're listening to and they're going to stick with that, whether that's right or wrong, you know? So um, I even saw something didn't, or oh, maybe you saw that. Holger Rune hires Bozo, which is Boris Becker. <laughs> yeah, I thought his like, nickname was Boom Boom. You know, and I felt bad for Boris. I mean, I, I know where that's coming from, but Boris Becker is Boris Becker. He knows what he's talking about. And that's kind of what, you know, the public eye will do to, um, a coaching relationship if they haven't done you know what i guess everybody expects them to do uh, especially somebody like boris um you know who i guess has a past also has played at the highest level coached at the highest level and uh older who's an aspiring maybe top one you know top three in the world who um is looking to be world number one and it's just funny to see. That's what those conversations um, get to a point where everybody's talking about, you know, Ozo the clown. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I saw that and I just had a good laugh. Oh, totally. Totally. That was uh, definitely one of the more fascinating coach coaching hires. Um, I want to ask you about, you know, composure handling pressure i'm actually going to share a brief anecdote uh with rob from me playing on court and you helping out in the summertime we have a wednesday match day once a week at at our thornhill park club and i was playing one of the juniors on one of the courts rob was coaching and i think i was up you know five two or five three trying to serve out the set and feeling comfortable and relaxed throughout the set playing good tennis and suddenly you get to the point where you're trying to close it out and suddenly the nerves hit for no reason. It's it's a practice set. I don't know why I'm getting nervous, but but I am. And Rob notices it, and it's Love 30, and notices 
sort of I'm not I've I've suddenly changed something about my serve. He's like, well, you're not you know holding holding your tossing hand up anymore. It's dropping and and you're rushing. Just sort of relax, you know. So I took a deep breath and I I relaxed and then I served out the set. Um, you know, this isn't my experience there. And you helped me out. I don't I don't think that's uncommon as a player where that sort of sets in. You know, how do you? I suppose we saw. You know, Anna Blinkova save eight match points, beat Rybakina this past week. We saw 16-year-old Mira Andreva come back from 5-1 down and win a huge match. How much? How many discussions would you have with players in terms of pressure moments, staying composed where you feel the tension rising so much, especially if you're you know playing in these huge stadiums with with thousands of people watching? I mean, well, I mean, yeah, Blinkova, you know, those examples are, they're running off of adrenaline and, you know, new experiences. So they're going to handle those experiences actually probably better than ones that have been in there just a little bit, you know, and then you'll go into those veterans who absolutely understand those um, scenarios. But um, it's a common conversation you know you know you're going to experience that we know going into a match that it's never ever going to be as easy as just closing a match out i think that's where you know having a very close open relationship is the most important i think that's you know number one and you know from uh from my experience all of my players we understood especially me going into matches and you know and analyzing my player kind of living vicariously through them on and off the court um you develop an awareness of their yips so to speak and um you know in your case i could easily point out that the fact of the matter was you are not concentrating on what is allowing you to get to that point you're now um, you know, lack of focus is dropped and you're just trying to close. So there's no awareness, no focus. So the simple thing is to get back to that. So for me as a coach, um, you have to have some sort of cues and understanding going into a match when you, whether it's being down breaks or going up breaks, closing it out. Um, there are simple commands that, you know, you and your player will have. And you guys can really rely on those things. And my specific thing was always having them come to the corner if we're fortunate enough to have that. Um, and they'll go to the, the towel and you'll just say some, you know, some simple command words, uh, breathe, toss, legs, look forward, get after them, whatever it is, you know, and those simple little you know, commands, if you guys have an honest relationship and you guys really understand each other, they go a long way because it's not going to correct and, you know, you're going to play the best tennis, but it's going to allow the player to slow down just enough to possibly get a little bit of luck on their side. And that's where, you know, if you can capitalize, close, break, or hold serve, then you have that whole relief of like, okay, now what do I do? And then you can have those conversations again and, and kind of get back to work. The key thing I took from that anecdote, Ben, was that you are definitely a proponent of on-court coaching, I guess. Is that is that right? I am. 
hundred percent all in on encore coaching. Absolutely. How, how did it work? How did it work out in that situation? Did you close out the practice set or what? I did close out the practice set actually. Uh, I did. And I think at that stage it was love 30. And then, you know, after that little tip, uh, I, I mean, it's all, I, I, I think about this sometimes in, in sport in general with, with tennis and other sports of what sort of clutch is or delivering in the moment. And I think delivering in the moment is actually, it's really just about trust in your ability and your skill set, believing that you can produce your skill set in those kind of key moments. So um, that worked out there. I'm not sure it would have if Rob isn't behind me because maybe you don't, I don't slow down and suddenly you give up the break and, and sets and matches can and can turn really quickly. So I'm grateful for that. I, I need I need Rob to come hang out on the public courts of Mimico with me and offer some advice through the chain link fence. That's what I need. That's my level of chain you know. fence. Uh, Rob, my last question for you before we pass it over to some of our listeners who submitted some questions uh, through social media for you probably the hardest questions you're going to face tonight um, is aside from Ben Lewis, who are the other young Canadians that you were working with in 2024? Um, primarily what's your, your plan for this year and who are some of the names that, uh, that you're looking after? Well, I mean, truthfully, my schedule is unclear. Uh, I haven't really nailed down exactly, you know, who and what the projects are this year. So I'm actually waiting from, um, uh, I guess Tennis Canada just to kind of award me what is happening, but conversations, obviously I'm not really going to speak about, but um, there are a ton of conversations about, you know, amongst myself and other players privately that, um, you know, could take flight. But uh, for now, all I'm doing is focusing on my family, staying home, working on Ben's game. We got a great group at uh, Thornhill. And I have a lot of ghost conversations right now. I just say ghost because it's probably the easiest term, um, you know, to kind of clarify what is happening and where things will take me. But it looks like I'll be heading out on the road shortly. To Mimico. I like it. To Mimico. To Mimico. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the next trip in store. Um, I'll get to our fan questions. Sorry, go ahead. You know, my schedule right now is interesting because usually I know exactly what I'm doing. And I think that's where I'm learning to be okay with not knowing what is happening and kind of bouncing around a little bit, which I think in the world of where I am now, that's an, like a normality, whereas before you're working with somebody that you know exactly what the schedule is, you're dialed in, and that's it. So I think the unfamiliar is pretty familiar, if that makes sense, to this stage, but I'm still just trying to get used to it a little bit, where it's, yeah, you kind of bounce around a little bit, but um, the schedules come to me, then I handle it, and off we go. But until then... Um, yeah, we're just uh, being family, man. Yeah. Working on the house. I, I like Working that. A... Um, I'll I'll give us our our fan questions here. Uh, this is one from Shiela. Uh, she asks, "What techniques do you use to get a player out of a slump?" Woo! It's a good question. Uh, 
Yeah, it's a good question. It's a hard question because you don't really know. I mean, it depends on what that player's personality is, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, typically, you know, from my experience, I've always had the, you know, pleasure of working with people that I'm able to, you know, develop a friendship and it's not as much on court as it is off court and and developing that friendship and bond and then using humor and developing confidence and 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 probably believing in the system of what we want to um, achieve and what we want to improve Um, and so breaking down a list of things that they can you know I guess we can have as tangibles and 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 see on a day to day, and I think that's what's a little bit easier working with pros um, at the highest level is is they can understand where um, the improvements are going. Maybe there's a little bit of a lag, but they can feel themselves getting better, and they know that you know in a couple months that that's going to translate into success. So. Um, I hope that answers things. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously not just one one foolproof uh, technique, right? I'll I'll give us a one more question here. This is from Chantal. She asks, uh, "What are your current thoughts on Denis Shapovalov? Can he get back to the top twenty? How can he not? I mean, the kid's such a charismatic character there's no way that he's not going to be top 20 again i mean it's just a matter of if he has plans in between his marriage and his <laughs> whatever he's got going on but i know that he's been working hard and uh and you'll see him back in the top 20 there's no doubt there's hopeless talent and then there's top 20 talent and uh yeah dennis definitely falls into that top 20 talent for sure we hope he can capitalize and solidify that and move back towards that as he comes back from injury um rob so great to have you back with us here you're one of our uh, all-time favorite guests we know that every time you're with us we're gonna have a good time we're gonna get some great insight um both from your time coaching the juniors and the professional players and so um as wide open as 2024 seems right now for you i'm sure that schedule is going to fill up quickly especially if uh, people are listening into uh, this this interview with us so Thanks for taking the time. Good luck finishing off that massive reno. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you again this year. Yeah, don't remind me about this reno. Jeez. But everybody, hey, everybody will be coming over for some tenants once everything's done. So that's the uh, yeah, that's the uh, end goal is tennis on the uh, the estate. Sounds good. We look forward to it. Thanks again, Rob. Take care, bud. And there he goes, former professional tennis player and coach Rob Steckley. Uh, as you said, one of our favorites, and I'll be seeing him on court in a couple days. Not to help me out with my game this time, I'll also be coaching alongside him. And one thing I've noticed about Rob in terms of his coaching philosophy is he doesn't say too much to our junior players. He kind of waits and picks his moment as they're going through drills and will give just one to two tidbits here and there. And as you said, like, as he said, you can kind of overload players with information if you're coming at them with too much. So little details here here and there can make a big difference. Yeah, he's a total pro. And uh, what an extensive coaching resume that he has. And he's, he's a young guy still. Like, he's got yep. 
many, many years ahead of him. And I think it's cool that he's also taken the time to really be the family man, you know, and be around for his kids and stuff too. They're at an age when I'm sure they really are happy to have him um, there as well. But uh, no doubt that guy's getting tons of requests. Um, just look at some of the names that he's worked with and the success he's had over his, his time as a professional coach too. Oh, definitely. That Lucy Safarova story was very interesting. I, I didn't realize, actually, she had match points against Lee Na, and of course, Na going on to win that title. Uh, we'll have that sort of lead into our action at the Australian Open week one, and we'll we'll start with the women. And wow, do we have some shock upsets through the first week. I, I know the women's side is generally, I, I think, a little more volatile in terms of upsets. We see it frequently, but I really did not have on my bingo card seeing Iga Sviantek, Elena Rybakina both out in the first week of this tournament. Right, and although last week on our preview episode, we did speak about how Iga had a very difficult draw. Yes. But I think we were kind of approaching it more like, mm, how much gas will she have left in the tank during week two? I don't think we said she's not going to make it to week two. And, I mean, she got through Kennan, former champion herself. She got through Danielle Collins, who played terrific tennis down under. Amazing. And that was a, a three-set match. Um, but, yeah, I don't think we had her going out in, in round three on, on our list of predictions this year. Credit to, and there's many of them, these young up-and-coming players. Like, youth has been served, I feel like, in uh, Melbourne this year. Oh, definitely. Uh, and yeah, credit to our first guest of the year, Abigail Johnson, because I shared her clip of what she had said about Linda Noskova, the Czech teenager who uh, kind of broke out last season, made two WTA finals, had beaten a string of top 10 players, played really well in her lead up tournament, I think, in, in Brisbane. Uh, so she was obviously in form and she just took it to Sviantek. I watched the match and she was relentless, fearless, going for her shots, serving really big and Iga was sort of completely off balance and, and trying to survive for much of that match. And so Noskova getting it done. So that's one big threat out. And then Elena Rybakina, who I really thought was a strong contender to potentially win this title or go very deep. She loses to Anna Blinkova, who, of course, you know, that was not a player on anybody's radar, I don't think. And losing 22 to 20 in the final set tiebreak, longest singles match tiebreak in Grand Slam history. Uh, spectacular tennis. I think that was one of the highlight matches of the week, without a doubt. Who, who do we think this hits harder, this early loss at the first major of the year? And we can talk about any of the players, but maybe just between even Iga and Rabakina. Do you think for one or the other, this is more problematic or concerning? Or are they just, okay, that's done, it's over? move on to the next tournament that's a really good question um i'll say it's hitting ribakina maybe slightly harder in the sense that i feel like if i'm picking out slams where she's having the best opportunity to win it i'd say wimbledon and australian open uh just in terms of her tennis and how it plays whereas iga you know, Australian Open, she hasn't won. She did win her one U.S. Open. She's always, as we know, going to be the threat uh, at Roland Garros, where she plays so incredibly well on the clay. But I don't think we were heading into, I, I think for a lot of people, they weren't necessarily picking Iga as the favorite to win this title. Definitely giving her a chance, but I think she still has a few vulnerabilities down under in Melbourne for whatever reason. That, as you said, like even in the second round, I mean, she was down, I think, 4-1 or 4-2, uh, to Danielle Collins in that third set and and barely scraped by in, in that one. So, you know, she still, as of now, has has that number one ranking. 
Um, I believe she'll hold it because Arena Sabalenka is defending champion points, defending her title. So I, I think it would be a little bit more of a loss for Rybakina, who will probably drop a couple spots in the rankings. Well said, well said. And and now we've got, of course, a bunch of players that maybe we didn't expect to be there, along with some that we did. I mean, definitely 15-seeded um, Jinwen Zhang. We've been high on her for quite a long time, and it seems like really, you know, a delivering on that promise right now, the way things are going as we're recording this on Sunday night here in Toronto. You've got some veterans like Victoria Azarenka, who we all know her success levels in Melbourne going back a bunch of years. Number 23 seed, Alina Svitolina, who's been terrific since she returned to the tour last last spring. And then a lot of players who, like sort of how we spoke with Rob earlier, you come into the season with all sorts of hope and optimism. For some of these players, this is going to be even exceeding what maybe their best case sort of scenario was to play the first major of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you look at, I mean, Diana Yastrzemska is an interesting case because we saw her a few years ago play this unbelievable tennis, uh, working with Sasha Bajin, the coach of Ni- former coach of Naomi Saka for a period of time. And it looked like she was on such an upwards trajectory. Then she really fell out of form, I think had some mental issues on the court struggle with injury and now she's back making the second week of a slam you have ukrainian marta kostyuk playing uh you know producing the best slam result of her career uh i I think really surprising results with italian jasmine paolini in the second week i don't think anybody saw that coming necessarily uh so there's a mix of these surprises and then you have like the mix of the veterans uh as you said svitolina and azarenka barbara krychikova playing great tennis again and she beat the 16 year old mira andreva and then, but right now it's really, ultimately it's two players really standing out to me, which is obviously Sabalenka defending her title and potentially facing Coco Goff in a, a mouthwatering semifinal. I almost wish that would be a final because they played the incredible final at Flushing Me- Meadows in the summer. Right. And, and Sabalenka is one of the scariest opponents out there oh, right yeah. now in terms of her results. We have the double bagel against uh, Alessia Serenko, the 28th seed. And, Look, a double bagel is hard enough to uh, achieve, let alone against a seeded player at a major. Um, so that was really quite a statement for for her. Uh, she just took out Amanda Nisimova, who, let's be honest, was playing some really good tennis for someone mm-hmm. who was coming back after a long layoff. That was really nice to see for her and must be, you know, super confidence-inspiring, inducing for the uh, still young American player. But for me, yeah, Sabalenka seems uh, kind of next level right now. Coco Goff also looking good, but I think has had maybe a little bit of a an easier path in in some ways. Um, saw a bit of Coco Goff uh, taking apart Alicia Parks quite handily the other day. Alicia Parks, of course, who took out Leilani Fernandez, and maybe we can just discuss for a moment the uh, the end of the tournament for uh, Canada's lone singles. Um, well, not lone. I guess Rebecca Marina was there too, like yes. losing to Pagula, but. Canada's uh, singles, uh, biggest singles hope on the women's side going out a little bit earlier than we kind of hoped. Yeah, I I think I had her penciled in to probably reach that third round. And I was really hopeful of seeing a match with Coco Goff. I feel like we've been denied that matchup a couple of times. I always go back to French Open and thinking I would get to see them play in the semifinals. It didn't happen. And it was, to me, like a surprisingly flat match from Layla's side against Alicia Parks, who she's a really good athlete. She has a huge, huge serve, uh, big ground stroke game. But Layla moves uh, better than her on the court. Uh, she's a you know fantastic counter puncher, which many people have seen. She moves the ball around effectively. And she had that first set lead. I think she had the break. She was up 5-2 in the first set. 
let that slip away. And, and it really felt like the wheels fell off for Layla after that. Normally she plays really upbeat, high energy tennis. And I just didn't see that from her. I don't know if she was maybe struggling in the heat a little bit. Her serve was not really coming in at the pace that it usually does her first serve, uh, which Parks was reading pretty well. And then suddenly you fall down a break in the second set. Parks is serving well, and she just never seemed to find her rhythm from the back of the court, which is uh, a shame because I think it was a great opportunity for her uh, to meet the third round and maybe get a test against one of the very best players in the world. But credit to Parks. She played a really good match uh, before getting overwhelmed by Goff in the next round. I, I think, you know, long season ahead for Layla. We know how well she finished in the fall, leading Canada to that Billie Jean King Cup title and winning in Hong Kong. I, I hope she can carry over the way she played then uh, as a platform for her 2024 season. And speaking of that Billie Jean King Cup uh, squad, just before we transition over to the men's results uh, down under, Gabby Dabrowski and her partner Aaron Routliff, the fourth seeds, still alive as we speak now in women's doubles into the quarterfinals. Uh, so they're continuing the enormous success they've had since they partnered up uh, last summer, which led them to a U.S. Open uh, title. Gabby's also in the mixed doubles with Nathaniel Lamons of the United States. They're yep. the six seeds. Um, so, so far, Gabby is having an outstanding start to, uh, to her season. Yeah, I know. No, it's also interesting that I noticed about the Australian open. I, I just hadn't thought of this is the doubles here in Melbourne is a full best of three sets. You play a third set. Whereas for example, at the U S open where they won, you're playing that 10 point super tie break. Uh, so I don't, I, I think I prefer that. Honestly, maybe there's a little bit more I think randomness. The players prefer it. I think the players prefer it too, because yeah, you know, they've admitted, I think even Aaron, when we had her on the podcast last summer after winning the US Open, mentioned it's a coin toss when you get to that champions tiebreak or totally. super tiebreak instead of having a full-on third set. So I would say the more consistent players, and we would definitely put Gabby and Aaron in that category based on what they've shown, would probably much prefer to just let the tennis speak for itself in a regular format to close out a match like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll We'll shift over to the men's side. I don't think any major surprises. There were a couple of surprises, but if we're talking about the top CC players pass to me, you know, if yeah, I had to pick one, sure. And nothing against Taylor Fritz, but CC pass has like, I don't want to say he's owned this tournament because he's never won it, but he's done pretty darn good with a couple of semifinal appearances and then the finals as well in succession. So he was someone that just based on previous play and mentality, and he's the kind of guy that you feel like when he gets to a tournament that he's done well at, um, he really feels, you know, connected. And so that was a big win for Fritz, who's now going to have his hands full as he goes in 0-8 ever against Novak Djokovic. Yeah, I, I have to say, that might be the best tennis I've ever seen Taylor Fritz play against Stefano Tsitsipas. He hit 50 winners to 19 unforced errors. You think about that ratio is just incredible. Uh, his movement was outstanding. His backhand was unbelievable. There were a lot of clips of uh, his his running uh, backhand down the line winner where he almost jumped and flailed at it. It was perfect, painted the line, and just a phenomenal match from his side. And uh, Tsitsipas basically said as much in, in the press conference that, you know, he took it and earned it. The thing is, Fritz is going to have, have to, at the very least, replicate his very best level for a true puncher's chance to beat Novak Djokovic in five sets. It's interesting. One of his eight losses against Novak was a five setter at the Australian open uh, a few years back when Novak was struggling physically and still found his way past him. And Djokovic, of course, uh, he's into his 58th grand slam quarterfinal that ties Roger Federer's all-time career mark.
and Federer fans everywhere, you know, Kleenex, you know, dab those tears, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and it's funny that, you know, that match against Djokovic in Australia three years ago, that's the only match of the eight career head-to-heads where Fritz has taken a set and, and really pushed him. I think taking sets three and four before Novak sort of corrected course in, in the fifth. Um, I'm super excited for Sinner versus Rublev. I have to tell you, uh, both two players that I just genuinely really uh, enjoy watching, not only their tennis, but I love uh, their demeanors, the, the the contrast. And um, I mean, Rublev gets so fired up sometimes, but oh, yeah. uh, I, I always feel like I can relate in those moments. I mean, he absolutely destroyed a racket in Toronto this past summer when he went out in his first round match. And I just like, oh, I feel it, you know, it just resonates somehow with me. Yeah, and then Yannick Sinner is, uh, I don't want to say emotionless, uh, but you see much, much less of that from his side of the court. It's very calm, cool, collected. So you're right. I I think those contrasting styles make for a great match. And I have to say, if I'm picking one player on the men's side who had the best opening week, I think it has to be Yannick Sinner. I I mean, 12-0 in sets. Maybe you could argue draw-wise he didn't get... Really a major test. Uh, I mean, Bodek von Gisansk-Skulp is a pretty good player. He played him in the first round. He destroyed uh, Sebastian Baez in the third round. Six love, six one, six three. And even fourth round, Hachinov, always a good Grand Slam player, beats him in straight sets. So for him to just be basically perfect to this point with Rublev waiting in the quarterfinals, Rublev now into 10 Grand Slam quarterfinals. And I, I already feel bad in the sense that like you feel like He's going to be 0-10 after this match. At least I do. Right, and Rublev's just coming in off of, uh, what, he had a five-set match as well, didn't he? Or am I Against like, Alex Dimenauer, and that was a great yeah. match. He was down right? two sets so, to one. So how much is going to be left in the tank? I'm really pulling for him, i got to say. And I like Yannick Sinner. Um, I, I'd be happy. You know, I'm going to be happy whoever moves forward, to be honest with you. Both, both nice guys. But uh, I, I really want to see Rublev get this monkey off his back and, and make his first slam semifinal. That being said, you know, what you were mentioning about Sinner and how sharp he's looked. I mean, if you had to put money down on someone who's yet to win a slam to deliver at some point, I mean, Sinner to me seems like it's a lock. It's just a matter of time. Not saying it's going to happen here, but you're feeling really confident based on the progression, the changes he's made, um, the hard work that he's putting in and just the overall demeanor and focus that this guy is going to be doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I I think if he does get to that semifinal, uh, assuming Novak Djokovic beats Taylor Fritz, I, I don't think you can get a taller order right now for for Djokovic in, in a semifinal at that stage of the event. Just quickly on the bottom half of the draw, it feels a lot softer, I think, the bottom half of this field. And I just get the sense that Danil Medvedev and Carlos Alcaraz are, are on sort of a collision course. And Alcaraz has had it fairly easy in his first week. I know he dropped one set to Sinego, but he's looked good and has uh, Kekmanovic next. Medvedev had an insane match that he played with Emil Ruzavori. They didn't finish till 3.45 in the morning. <laughs> but I think just overcoming that hurdle and, and winning his following match against Felix actually uh, has set him up nicely probably to, to at least make the final four, I would think. Yeah, it's a little disappointing to me that after he got pushed to five sets um, in the second round, that Felix wasn't able to sort of capitalize on that, even in the slightest. It was a straight set victory for Medvedev, who's beaten Felix, what, every time that they faced yep. each other as professionals? 7-0. So, yeah, tough to see Felix not able to push that match a little bit. And 
you know, whatever the tactics are against Medvedev, clearly uh, it's time to go back to the drawing board and, and try something different the next time they meet because it, it just hasn't been working for him against uh, the Russian. Yeah, it seems like just a, I don't know if it's just an outright bad matchup. I know Medvedev is a bad matchup for a lot of players and, and Felix certainly hasn't solved that puzzle. But I would say at least positive steps for him getting two wins here. And, and that five-set win over Dominic Team, uh, We mentioned Denis Shapovalov with Rob Steckley. He lost in the opening round to qualifier Jakob Mensik. I, I feel like we just need to maybe give him some time, patience, some time. And, and match play. Milos Raonic, just as we wrap up, uh, I feel bad because he was playing Played really so well. well. He was playing fantastic against Alex Dimenauer, who's basically in the form of his life. You know, he he wins the second set there. Uh, they're heading into a third and just, I mean, the story of his career, ultimately his, his body gives out. And we've seen it happen many times before. And, and hopefully this is not anything huge. Um, I did speak with his team after the match and they made it seem like there wasn't a huge amount of concern in terms of moving forward, but there was some hip inflammation that was definitely impacting him, particularly on his serve. Uh, I, I think if you're going to feel anything in a match, Probably, given what Milos has been through, you're going to play it safe at this point of the season. And True. who knows, maybe he could have pushed through it, but chose not to. And, you know, he's got a lot of big goals for this year. As he told us, he wants to play in the Paris Olympics for Canada, represent his country. So I think just kind of playing it safe, being cautious. Um, it was super encouraging, though, to see the fight he was giving Alex Dimenauer, someone who's been playing some unreal tennis, top 10 level tennis, and he's into yep. the top 10 for the first time in his career too. So hopefully we see Milos back uh, real soon, back on the court. Yeah, fingers crossed. And uh, fingers crossed, not necessary, as we head to the final week of the Slam. I'm certain we'll get great tennis. Thanks to Rob Steckley for joining us. Guys, we'll be back in a week to recap the Slam. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>